Hey, it's Dr. Habib. Today I'm going to talk about the power of glutathione. And uh, here I'm doing my podcast, but um, you know, you may as well kind of get a view of um, the action here. And uh, I want to start with an example. And that example is that the number one cause of overdose in America is using Tylenol. And um, it's a pretty nasty way to go because it depletes the liver of clotting enzymes. And without those clotting enzymes, the individual that takes the overdose will bleed to death internally and externally. So it's a pretty nasty way to go. And um, the remarkable thing is the treatment is uh, closer to you than you realize. So in the ER, we use something called N-acetylcysteine. When you consume N-acetylcysteine, your liver is able to process that and convert it to glutathione. Now, glutathione is the most powerful antioxidant in your body. And in the case of Tylenol overdose, we give this product, N-acetylcysteine, about 17 grams, up to 9 or 10 doses, back to back, literally flooding the system where the body is able to not only produce glutathione, but through the production of glutathione, find a way to heal that liver. So from liver failure to complete cure, there's very few things in medicine that can mimic that kind of result. And it's amazing to me that that information is not only disseminated to people, but that we don't utilize the knowledge from that. And today I want to sort of widen the uh, the scope of what this amazing compound can do. So, as I uh, alluded to, glutathione is the most powerful antioxidant in your body and your liver makes it. So, for an average person, if you measure the glutathione levels, you'll, uh, have, you'll be able to evaluate uh, is the body either making enough or is the body consuming too much. There are two variables, so you can't really say uh, for sure, but uh, through a good history and maybe other parameters, you can figure that out. Now, when we talk about liver function, doctors, I believe, incorrectly assume that the liver enzymes, we call them uh, LFTs, liver function tests, they are incorrectly labeled as liver function tests because your liver enzymes, the AST and ALT, these elevate when the liver is being damaged. And a common uh, 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 scenario is when people are on statin medication like Lipitor and Zocor and Crestor, that inevitably a significant number of people have elevations in the liver enzymes. That's the AST or ALT, and those we call those liver transaminases, and they only come out when there is damage to the liver cells. Now, with those group of medications, we allow the liver enzymes to be elevated 100%, even 200%, sometimes 300%, because we know that it doesn't lead to lasting damage, or does it? In the short term, no. Long term, we don't know. Uh, the fact is this, that ha- having liver enzymes uh, being produced because of damage to the liver cells from anything, whether it's alcohol or medication or any kind of toxins, is not a good sign because if your liver is the main organ to produce the most powerful antioxidant, glutathione, you can be pretty sure that if your liver is being damaged, it's not like, as likely to produce the glutathione, which is an amazing, amazing compound. The example I just gave you, it can actually reverse liver failure from Tylenol overdose. 
So if that didn't amaze you, then let me continue this conversation. There are studies to show that low glutathione levels are synonymous with increased heart disease, increased cancer, increase in many, many diseases, including age-related diseases. Now, there is no direct cause and effect. Nevertheless, it's not a good position for you to be in. Just like having liver enzymes that are elevated because you're on medication, I wouldn't buy the fact that it's harmless. The fact is that if your enzymes are being leaked, it's because there is damage to the liver cells, and a liver cell that is being damaged cannot fully function. Now, one of the major functions of the liver is to produce glutathione, but it doesn't stop right there. Just to continue the conversation about the amazing organ itself, not only the amazing compound glutathione, the liver is not only the producer of your clotting enzymes, clotting factors, I should say, but it is the place that you process and metabolize carbohydrates, fats, and protein. It is the place that you detoxify the body. In fact, glutathione is the master detoxifier. It is the place that your, uh, that your, your liver is the place that uh, is uh, making amino acids. So really, the liver is not just something that, that the bloodstream filters through once you've ingested food. It really is a powerhouse of enormous consequences. And so going back to, as I said, the liver, uh, glutathione being able to heal the liver from Tylenol overdose, low levels of glutathione are synonymous with bad things. I want to give you some, some feedback about how you can incorporate glutathione in your lifestyle. And so the number one thing to understand is that the liver is closely connected to the gut. So almost, uh, not almost, 100% of everything that you consume, if it's going to get absorbed into the gut, must get filtered through the liver. And that's kind of the way we have to detoxify our body. We process the items that are getting absorbed. And so really, it is an amazing organ and such an amazing organ that it'll never complain. It'll never complain when you have problems related to alcohol or when you have problems related to you know, toxins because it has an immense ability to absorb all these uh, 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 exposures and insults. And one example I gave, give to people because it's so remarkable that it is the only organ where if you were to remove a part of it from surgical procedure, the liver will grow back into the entire space of that liver. That's an amazing organ and no other organ to my knowledge can do that. Okay. And so going back to glutathione, because today we wanted to talk about glutathione amongst the other amazing things that the liver does, is that if you burden the liver with a bad diet, if you burden the liver with toxins like alcohol or chemicals, chemicals meaning things which are additives, preservatives, uh, even things in your environment eventually get into the food system, right? Pesticides and so forth. The, the, the problem is that your liver is then burdened with having to deal with it and in that process will have less ability to do all the other amazing things. Now, one of the other things that people may overlook is that increasingly there's a condition called leaky gut syndrome. And so leaky gut is um, basically saying that instead of a very tight uh, area that allows molecules to go through, fragments of nutrients to go through, the, the opening is so large it's called leaky gut. And what that does is allows large molecules that are alien to the immune system to enter, which is not good for the immune system, number one. But increasingly, it's also going to be a portal of entry for toxins. 
And so if you have constipation, you're also in, 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 at risk of toxins lying in the, on, inside your colon and eventually making their way into the bloodstream. And so the health of your gut is one of the primary uh, ways to minimize the burden on the liver. Whether you're ingesting something or just the health of your gut, it's all related to your choices. Your choices of good foods, for example, if you have foods like artichokes, food like garlic, they have two components. They have what we call soluble fiber, which in turn is fuel for the bacteria. We call it a prebiotic. And then you have fiber, which is good for the gut integrity, and that's conducive for the good bacteria to flourish. And some people take a probiotic. So probiotics are another terminology for good bacteria, beneficial bacteria. Prebiotics is like things that feed the probiotics. So certain foods are rich in both pre and probiotic, and that is garlic and artichokes and many, many things like that. And so I think eating the right foods, for example, foods that are uh, cruciferous, that means the cabbage, the cauliflower, the broccoli, the Brussels sprouts, they are donors of something called sulfur, and they are very good at detoxifying the liver. And so eating the right foods is one of the keys, but very important to understand what I started off by saying, don't put the bad things in. Either it's a direct insult on the gut, which in turn leads to leaky gut and maybe inflammation or a bit of both. It's an interchanging situation, but other things which are directly harmful to the body, just like fried food, particularly fried fat in high temperatures. This is particularly bad because they almost become carcinogenic. And my, uh, my theory, and this is just my theory, is that, you know, just like the human body, when you have toxins, your body tries to store it in the body fat to keep it away from the circulation. So it's not circulating around your body, around your brain, so you don't feel bad. But when you burn those fats, you're then releasing them, you're combusting them. It's like nicotine. Nicotine by itself is not the problem. But the things you combust in cigarettes, those are highly, not only flammable, they're also highly carcinogenic. And so in the same thing, fat by itself is bad, but when you have fat that you burn, then it's even more carcinogenic because you're now releasing in some way or form the toxins which are stored in the body fat. So just like we say animal fat is bad for colon cancer, animal fat is bad for cardiac disease, I think that we can take that one step further. You know, uh, fat that is superheated or burnt is even worse for the gut, even worse for oxidized cholesterol, even worse for increasing cancer risk. So keep that in mind, uh, not directly related, but indirectly related. And so we talk about things that can be bad for uh, the gut directly, things which are bad for you uh, directly and indirectly. Anything that's bad for the gut is bad for the liver. And then going back to the liver, you can facilitate the production of glutathione, and I have lots of uh, lab evidence for this, is if you give the precursors, and namely cysteine and N-acetylcysteine, give your sulfur compounds, get me give methyl donors, your body will produce glutathione. Now, the only caveat to that, if you are truly very scientific, which I am, is that you can do genetic testing on some people. Some people you don't even need to do genetic testing. Let me explain. The people that can process all these foods adequately, they're able to methylate, they're able to take these sulfur groups, they're able to detoxify the body, they generally have no genetic mutation. So everything's working just fine and dandy. You won't have any concerns with these people. However, if you see the people that have chronic problems, they're never just right. They've never been right. They either have chronic fatigue, they have chronic issues, 
they are susceptible to chronic infections like mono, they seem to get recurrent infections of different types and viruses, and even unfortunate people with Lyme disease. What will be common is that they usually have some genetic weaknesses in their ability to methylate and sulfoninate, so you cannot produce that glutathione as readily. Now in those people, you can't get away with just giving precursors because they genetically won't have the pathway to convert that precursor to the glutathione. So a little bit too much information, I would say that if you eat the whole food, you probably have no concerns, but for someone like myself who uses nutrients and supplements or nutraceuticals as a therapy, then for me, I have to be careful that I don't overload somebody who doesn't have the ability to process it. In that situation, I just give the individual the glutathione itself. Okay, so let me simplify that. You either give the precursors, the, in other words, the building block, so your liver can make a glutathione, or you give glutathione by itself. So the precursors are the cheaper way to do it. Most of the people can do it just fine, if you're just a sort of average, normal, walking, talking person. If you have chronic issues, I would consult with the doctor just to figure out whether you're a candidate to evaluate those weak pathways and maybe to make assumptions and, and bypass the precursor and just go straight to the glutathione. Let's talk about glutathione itself. It's a powerful antioxidant, like with all antioxidants, they can become oxidized. So the way they're delivered to the body is very, very, very important. That's kind of why glutathione is a little bit on the pricey side, because they need to be protected. The number one way to be protect them is liposomal. So in other words, the glutathione itself is encased in a sphere of liposome. There's a couple of benefits. Number one is the liposome protects it from oxidation. It cannot get uh, broken down and is good for a long period of time. Secondly, when you ingest it, almost 100% of it will get absorbed to the gut lining. And the first thing that it meets when it goes through the gut lining is not only the blood vessels, which take it to the liver, which is where you want it, but you also have the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is the, the tracks around the body that connect up all the white blood cells. That's your immune cells, all the different types. So if you can have you know, glutathione that enters the gut and goes directly into the bloodstream, as well as directly into the lymphatic system, you're really halfway to having perfect health. Instead of the indirect way of absorbing it in the gut, then into the bloodstream, then around the body, then getting into the cells, you're getting it directly into the organs that need it most. So glutathione in its, in its pure form has to be protected against oxidation. You can do it with liposomal. Some people do it with a spherical gel of some kind. And even that has to be taken very seriously so that they are, have good integrity, that they don't perish in sitting on the, on, the, on the table for a long period of time. Their expiration date is long. And so when you get a product of glutathione, if it's inexpensive, you have to ask yourself, how did they make it so inexpensive? Because generally the procedure to make it liposomal or protect it against oxidation is not inexpensive. So keep that in mind when you are choosing a right brand for glutathione. And so you cannot go wrong when you take the glutathione in its purest form, and that is glutathione in itself. Okay. Now, the question is, well, how much do you need? Well, I was alluding to, it's a balance. Your body could uh, be using it up at a faster rate than you're consuming, then your net result will be negative. Uh, consequently, your body may not be consuming it at a very rapid rate, and you're, and you're supplementing with even a good diet, then you'll have good levels. Uh, the truth is, you need to measure the glutathione level. That's number one. Number two, you can kind of figure out if it's low on somebody that has a bad diet. Well, that's one of the reasons. They are not taking the nutrients to make glutathione or they're putting uh, too much uh, 
uh, uh, too many bad things which are burning the liver in a, and not allowing the liver to produce glutathione. So that's another way to look at it. And so measuring it is one thing. And then, you know, getting those other numbers that we were talking about, those liver enzymes could be a great clue. So when the liver enzymes are slightly elevated and you're not on a Lipitor or a statin, the third most common reason that, well, I should say, the third most common disease is elevated liver enzymes from fatty liver disease. So I'm jumping a little bit, but I think you'll be able to follow me. Fatty liver disease is like saying fatty infiltration in the liver. The number one reason for that is just storage phenomena. If you consume too many carbs, your body will store it in the form of triglyceride. The triglyceride will be traveling all over the body and storing itself in muscle fibers and the tissues. And the, one of the biggest tissues and organs is the liver. And literally, it will be fatty. If you do an ultrasound, you'll see like fatty streaks in the liver, a fatty kind of a coloration, which is very different to a normal uh, ultrasound of a liver. And so that remi remember, that's a third most common disease. Therefore, you're going to find a lot of people with elevated liver uh, enzymes. And I'm not saying that that's the only diagnosis, but that's the most common. So before you jump to getting a biopsy and being convinced to go and do expensive testing, you just get rid of the carbohydrates for four weeks and you'll find that your fatty liver will disappear. I mean, when I say get rid of, I mean really get rid of it. So for another day, we'll talk about fatty liver and really how you can cure it in four weeks. There is no medication for it, by the way. So that, that's why I think people jump to testing and finding disease when really the disease is you're consuming too many carbs, your body's storing it. So the liver um, uh, uh, tests can be done. Even though I told you liver enzymes are a sign of liver damage, and fatty liver is damaging your liver. In fact, we now have evidence to say that if you have fatty liver long enough, that that's a risk factor for liver cancer. So if that wasn't serious enough, uh, if the, the other things I didn't say wasn't serious enough, cancer is serious. And so liver enzymes are, are a good way to know if your liver is uh, either being stressed or being damaged. And for my uh, evaluation, when I see liver enzymes, and the range ranges anywhere from five to 43, depends on the lab that you use, you want to be half of the range or less. So it doesn't matter which lab you use. If your range goes up to 43, having being around 20 is quite respectable or less. I see people in 15, that's phenomenal. But if you're at 35, 40, you should really check what your baseline is. And like any number, don't use it as an absolute. You need to go back 20 years, go back 10 years, go back five years, look at your numbers. And so you'll see if what, what it used to be. Generally, when you're younger, it's generally better. But in this day and age, not always the case. The other one that's an interesting uh, liver enzyme is called gamma GT. Now, gamma GT is synonymous, used to be, with people who just consume too much alcohol. So alcohol is a toxin. And we knew that the uh, excessive amounts of alcohol intake caused the gamma GT, which is another liver enzyme, to be elevated. Now we realize that there are other reasons for the gamma G to be elevated, namely any other toxin. So not only is alcohol a toxin, but you can have pesticides, you can have, um, uh, um, frankly, other drugs, you can have uh, chemicals in your food, uh, just a bad fatty burnt diet, so or a burnt fat diet. Uh, you know, anything that has toxins, if your liver is being burdened, the gamma GT goes up, it's really just asking help from the liver to make glutathione. So that's a, that's a simple way for people to understand. More gamma GT is a message to the body to say, hey, I need more glutathione. So, so here's the clues to measure the glutathione level. If it's low, ask yourself, is your body not making it? 
or is your body using it up? It could be both. However, if you have elevated liver enzymes or elevated gamma GT, then maybe your liver is being burdened and as a result it's consuming the glutathione. So you may be making good amounts, but it's not enough to match the demand and it's going down. And so in that situation, the short term is take supplement with glutathione. In the long run, find the things that are creating the burden on the liver. And I remember the liver and the gut are hand in hand. So the, each subject can be talked about at length uh, by itself. The gut can be talked about at length by itself. The liver can be talked about at length by itself. But you know, as a physician, I don't really like to isolate a subject because as a physician, we have to really integrate multiple, multiple systems. I think these two are pretty good at uh, being fairly comprehensive because these two lead to immune problem. These two lead to autoimmune disease. These two lead to inflammation. So really these two are the portal for the rest of the body being healthy or not being healthy. But when you get people presenting on any one subject like inflammation, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's only good if that individual can incorporate multiple organ system because that's kind of how the body works. And so that's why I'm glad that we spoke about the glutathione and the liver, but then we connected the gut because they go hand in hand. You cannot talk about one without the other, frankly. Okay. There are always exceptions to every rule. That, so never say uh, 100% for anything. That's my principle. And so in conclusion, I would say that um, you know, if there wasn't enough good things about glutathione, that having levels not only in the average level, in the optimal level, and so there are ways to measure this in functional testing. So there are what we call percentiles. So 25 percentile of the population is near the bottom. There's 25 percentile of the population near the top. Where would you want to be? I suggest you want to be at the top because higher levels are synonymous with less dementia, less cardiac disease, less cancer. And the more studies that are going to be done on glutathione levels, you'll see that it, the more benefits will be, uh, will be revealed just like vitamin D. The more you study it, the more you see how it's intertwined with multiple, multiple organ systems. And glutathione is one of those things. So uh, I have some questions, because I know um, there's some things that you mentioned. So um, off the bat, I think people want to know if there's any side effects to glutathione. Very good. So look, uh, I have a lot of experience giving glutathione orally. I have a lot of experience giving it intravenously. And I've given it orally in liposomal form, in precursor form, in, uh, in gel form. And, uh, and um, I suspect that because I measure levels, uh, I, uh, I make sure that there are safe boundaries. That said, in all the people that I've given high doses of glutathione and where I've measured their level, I've never seen a toxic level. In other words, almost 90% of vitamins are water-soluble. Anything that's water-soluble, your body has a perfect way of keeping a homeostasis. In other words, it will excrete it through the urine. The exceptions, just whilst we're on the subject, are things which are fat-soluble, you cannot be as, um, as, um, as, uh, as relaxed because fat-soluble things can be stored around the body. So A, D, E, and K. Vitamins A, D, E, and K. Those you have to be a little bit more careful, but almost every vitamin other than those can be safely taken. And bear in mind, I use large doses of it, even though I measure, I've never seen a toxic level, and that's probably because it's water-soluble, it's excreted readily. So um, earlier you talked about how does it, you, you talked about how it detoxes the liver glutathione. Yeah. Uh, could you go more into like exactly how it detoxes or like, 
or what does it actually detox? Yeah, yeah. So the it's it's all about chemical bonds. So glutathione has a double sulfur bond, and by donating it, it is able to neutralize the in a simple way that it's able to neutralize those toxins, and, and it's able to facilitate many pathways. Many th uh, uh, of the things that we know in medicine, there is not a direct cause and effect. For example, when we say we give a a Lipitor, a Zocor, or Crestor, that's a statin, and we have lower cholesterol. We can't say for sure that it prevents a heart attack or prevents, we don't know the mechanism. We see an association. When we see that obesity is associated with more cancer and more heart disease and more arthritis, we cannot say that obesity is the cause. In the same way, you cannot say that glutathione is the, is the treatment for detoxification. We don't know the direct effect, but we do know the association. When you have higher glutathione levels, you have a less toxicity in your body. When you have higher glutathione level in the body, you have a higher immune function. When you have uh, higher glutathione levels, we know that you probably will have less cancer and heart disease. And then, so th this might not have anything to do with glutathione, but earlier on you talked about um, uh, burning fat, especially in animal fat, yeah, right. how it can lead, it can be carcinogenic. Yeah, yeah. So w w what, what's your stance on barbecue meat? Well, I was going to go there because that's kind of how you burn it, right? So uh, look, uh, let's make it simple for you. Have you ever tried boiling your beef? It's really not very tasty, is it? So where do you think the smell and the aroma, when you go past a fast food restaurant and you smell the waft of uh, air in the chimney, well, the smell's pretty good, right? That's burnt fat. So the flavor that you get is from the burnt fat. And when you don't burn it, you don't get the flavor. So it's a fine line between flavor and health. So we're just talking about extremes. You don't want to boil your meat because you won't like it. And, unless but you if you, do. unless you, that's right, unless you slow cook it so you get the caramelization, it won't be the same, but it's much more tasty than literally boiling it, okay? And then you got the other end of the spectrum where if you barbecue things, it's pretty damn tasty. Uh, or you got it on a flame grill, a Burger King, or you got it on a, on a hot um, uh, 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 metals uh, um, uh, cooktop and you're searing the burger. It's burning it that gives you the flavor. It's those carbon bonds. We call them hydrogenation, or, uh, and it, it's that which gives the flavor, but that is the carcinogen. And particularly when you literally burn it, like with the flames, then, as I said, this is theoretical, but my principle is that if you have toxins in that animal meat, it's more likely to be carcinogenic from burning it, because you're changing the chemical structure. Exactly how I can't tell you the mechanism, it's, again, the association. That's good enough for most people, frankly, because that's, that's how uh, the body works. And the other thing I would say is that, conversely, if you can choose your animal meats, particularly the red meat, to be of, from a good source, an animal that is well reared, like given good natural food, running wild, you know, under less stress, because just like humans, when we're under stress, we oxidize. So things turn bad. And when animals are under stress, they oxidize their fats. And that's when their fat becomes bad for you. So animal fat is synonymous with more colon cancer because animal fats have toxins. Animal fats that are reared badly by giving them bad food and under stress, they have bad fat and then you have more cancer. So what goes around comes around. You treat the animals badly, then you eat their flesh. That's what's going to happen. God forbid an alien wanting to eat us because they'll be toxic very soon, I'm sure. And so going back to barbecuing, it's the, it's the high temperature, it's the flames, 
and it's uh, burning the toxins in the fat. And conversely, if you get good sources of you know, grass-fed beef, I'm not condoning large amounts of it. I'm not condoning barbecuing it uh, all the time, but I would say that that certainly will be less risky. Question. Yeah, so you know, next time what we will do is um, uh, continue the conversation uh, about the immune system, and um, and I'll show you how the immune system affects blood pressure, and um, really the immune system is an umbrella over all things. So you'll see me in uh, connecting up many many conditions with the immune system, and um, and so for another day. So take care.